Good morning, everyone. I'll tell you, hearing you guys sing from up here is a very amazing experience. Usually I'm out there, but to be backstage and hear all the voices, fantastic. If you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 15 as we continue the study of uh, the book of Romans. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you want to turn to page 893. Romans 15 or page 893. For the past couple of weeks, we have been talking about what it takes to live in community with people who are different from you. And as our communities become more and more diverse, the ability to live with people who are different from you becomes more and more important. <clears throat> In the last two weeks of our study of Romans, Paul has been addressing the differences between the weak and the strong in community. And that's really important because the strong are always tempted to use their strength to trample, discard, or ignore the weak if you have a forceful personality. Use it to get your way. Push others to accept your point of view. If you have the upper hand, use it to your advantage. In most societies, the ones who are on the top are the strong, and the strong get to direct the direction the society goes, the values that the culture adopts. And those who usually are on top are there because they use their strength for themselves. This is true in business, in politics, in society. This is evolution at, the, at its best, it's called the survival of the fittest. And a lot of the advice we get in our society and our culture isn't very helpful. On the one hand, we're taught to ignore the differences, downplay them. Don't even acknowledge that you have the differences. Just ignore them entirely. Or on the other, the only opportunity, only counsel they have is, well, then just tolerate the differences. So we can either ignore them or you just have to kind of put up with them, and neither of them are a very satisfying reality. When we go through culture like that, we basically have what's called a, a very thin community, right? Where relationships are just transactional, where you just interact at the bare minimum to get what you want or need to get by, but you don't really know the person, you don't really care about the person. The Bible offers a completely different, much grander view of human differences and relationships. You see, the world says, use your strength for yourself, where the Bible says, use your strength for others. In God's economy, strength denotes obligation. In the world, strength denotes privilege. As we come to Romans chapter 15, these 13 verses completely upends this kind of thinking. When it comes to our differences, whether you are the weak or the strong, Paul argues for so much more than just ignore it or tolerate the differences. In fact, Paul puts forth a view of our differences that where we can welcome each other, accepting one another, and using our differences not to divide and fracture, but to actually unify. This is how you build thick community. Thick community being where you're not uh, separated by your differences, but actually become interdependent because of your differences. Because you learn to deal with those differences, you learn to relate and communicate, and you learn to care for each other, and your differences bind you rather than separate you. The key to doing this is about applying what we spoke of for the last two weeks. So if you haven't been here, I want to encourage you to listen to those last two sermons and add to that nuance what we're talking about this morning, and that is to use your strength to please others and not yourselves. In these 13 verses, Paul's going to give us three reasons to take up that charge and change our lives. Paul's plea to use our strength to please others, not ourselves. Here's his three arguments because, number one, Christ did the same exact thing. 
Number two, our unity, when that happens, is our witness to the watching world. And then number three, that kind of action, people using their strength not for their own benefit but for others, is evidence of gospel hope. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Hopefully you're at Romans chapter 15 or page 893. With that, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to read from Romans 15 verses 1 all the way down to verse 13. Paul writes this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who rises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Paul, in these 13 verses, talks about a lot of things, but one of the messages that comes through is a plea to use our strength to please our neighbors, not ourselves. And as I said, he gives us three reasons to do it. And the first one is because this is exactly the same thing that Christ had did. Now notice right out of the gate in verse 1, Paul puts the, the weight of responsibility for the unity and upbuilding of the community on the shoulders of the strong. So friends, if you consider yourself a strong Christian, if you consider yourself to be a mature Christian, if you consider yourself to have some growth in Christ, then it is your duty to bear the weaknesses of the weak. And the Greek word that is translated as bear is the Greek word bastazo and can be translated as carry or support. And so this makes perfect sense. Anything that is strong, we use it to give support to other structures or to carry items. But it's not just to the strong to have a responsibility. The onus of it falls to them. But notice verse 7, we see that this is really a, a two-way street. It takes all people in the community to do that. Verse 7, he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. This is plural. So he's not just talking to one segment. He's talking to all the church at Rome. Now, by definition, friends, if you have the grace to be strong, God gave you that grace for a reason, which is to bear the weight of others, to carry or to support. Not to please yourself, but to please others. Now, as we'll see in a little bit, I think it's safe to say that while our immediate context, Paul's talking about 
uh, strength of moral conscience. The last couple of weeks, it was issues of the freedoms and liberties they have in Christ. So the immediate context is strength of moral conscience, but it's fair to say that this principle applies to everything else. And so if you have strength in various other areas, that grace to you is not just so you can enjoy it for yourself, but use your strength for the benefit of others, whether that might be physical strength. And here I don't mean how much you can weight lift, right? But I mean you just have good health, a good constitution. Whether you have physical strength, financial strength, spiritual strength, you get the point. Whatever God graces you to make you strong, use that strength not just for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. As Paul says, for his good to build them up. This qualifies what Paul intends by the statement, please your neighbor. Pleasing our neighbor, something which the Bible commends, right? Leviticus chapter 19, 18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, 8 through 9, Paul says, Owe no one anything but a debt to love. So pleasing our neighbor is something the Bible commands. People pleasing, on the other hand, is something the Bible condemns. That is not something that God wants us to do. And when he talks about for their good, for their building up building, he's qualifying what he has in mind. It's not simply doing what the other person wants, meeting their preferential desires or their presenting needs. That's not the goal. That kind of man-pleasing does not please God. But he says to use your strength to please your neighbor for their good, for building them up. You have your Bible. Um, Go to the, the book of Colossians, just a couple pages to the right. It's right after the book of Philippians. And, and here, Paul talks a little bit about what he's talking about here, as in some sense, this is almost a life verse of the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 1, he says in verse 28, him, speaking of Jesus Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul saying, look, look. We, we, this is Jesus Christ we proclaim all of our wisdom, all of our energies to make them present people mature in Christ. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Paul is talking about this is what it means to build someone up for their good. You, by God's grace, have been given a strength. Employ that very grace as you seek to help others become more like Jesus Christ, even if that costs you, even if that costs you your freedoms, if that costs you your rights. Do what it takes to build one another up. One of the first times I had a real practical application of this, I was 26 years old. It was the first time I was, being, I was um, a Greek instructor for, a, for a, a Bible college. And I'll never forget, I walked into the class, and, you know, I had at the time I had my earrings in and my um, tattoos, but I had my hair pulled back in a ponytail, and I had it braided tightly, but it still ran down about halfway down my back, almost close to my waist. And as I approached the lectern, I'll never forget the looks on people's faces. Like, you are the professor of Greek, and, it, and I, for that moment, I got through the class pretty good, but it occurred to me at that moment, up to that point in my life, my hair and my appearance had opened doors for the gospel. With my tattoos, my piercings, my hair, I looked like anybody else on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood. You couldn't pick me out from any of the other guys that were sitting at a bar in the Troubadour in Santa Monica. 
But the very thing that used to open doors for me, for the, 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 the witness I had to the world that very few Christians inhabited, now was closing those doors. And that's not a critique on them. It's just, this was, this was the era of the mid-90s before the cool pastor look came in, right? When you had pastors with all the tattoos and all that kind of thing. So you still wore suits and everything. I didn't fit the image. And so I went home that night, took a pair of scissors, and I just clipped off 10 years of hair. Want to see it? I found it. <laughs> Here's the evidence. There it is. It still has the same scrunchie of that night. 25 years ago, I just cut it right off. Look how brown. My hair's gotten so gray. Like, I could, like, I tell Lori, I should, like, put it back in. Right? That kind of goes down there. All right. I know it's kind of morbid, but what happened was I tried to sell it to a company to make wigs, but they wouldn't take it from me because I'm not Asian. Well, it's my, apparently I've learned you can be Asian, but you're not going to buy your hair unless you're from Asia. So it's been in my drawer for like 25 years, and I thought this is a good reason to, to bring it out. So it's, it's now the family, the Rodiver family heirloom. Yeah. <laughs> I know it says something about the fact that I still keep it. I'm still connected to that past life. I'm sorry. But... But the point, and don't be weird after second hour and ask to come up to touch it like some first hour people did, all right? It's just hair. <laughs> so here's my point. If this freedom I had to just kind of grow my hair, do whatever I wanted, was going to prevent my ability to build up the body of Christ, then I'm going to be, I was strong enough to live without it. And I think the point Paul's getting at is that we can have our freedoms, we can have our rights, we can enjoy them. But at the end of the day, our goal ought to be not living to please ourselves and whatever it might be, whether it's a huge thing or something small and simple like how long your hair is going to be, but do all you can to build others up. And I love what Paul does is, as he always does, he gives a theological ground to the practical command. Notice in verse 3, he gives a theological ground. He says, for Christ did not please himself. And notice in verse 3, this is a very concise summary and meaning of the, the entire ministry and character of Jesus' earthly life. He didn't live for himself. He didn't live to please himself, but to do what was the will of the Father and good of the brother, his brothers and sisters. According to Paul, Jesus is not just the, the pattern of, but the power for us to use our strength to others. Now, what I mean by pattern is, we'll look at the power in verse 13, but in verse 7, we see him as our pattern. Paul writes, therefore, welcome one another, notice that phrase, as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another just as Christ welcomed you. How did Christ welcome you? Well, he opened you with, welcomed you with wide, arms wide open. He is our pattern. The way we are to welcome one another is in the same way that Jesus Christ welcomed us. In verse 7, that, that therefore, right, you, you know enough now. Whenever there's a therefore, you know that the author is concluding an argument. Right? He's, he's grounding what he says. So Paul is concluding what he talked about in, verses, in verse 1 of this chapter. But really, this goes back three weeks to the beginning of Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Paul's been making this long, ongoing, continuous argument, and we see it in the very words he's using. So in Romans 14:1, he opens up, hey, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him. And then at the chapter 15, verse 7, he concludes it, therefore, welcome one another. How? As Christ has welcomed you. 
And how did Christ welcome us? Paul says in verse 8, he became a servant. And if you were here last week, we concluded with a reading of Philippians 2, where Paul talks about the servant attitude, servant heart of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, Though being equal with God, he did not account his equality with God something to hold on to, but gave it up, emptied himself, and became a servant by taking upon himself human likeness. Paul says here, Christ did this to to the Jews, to become a servant, showing to the Jews God's faithfulness, and to the rest of us who weren't Jewish, showing God's mercy. And then, like rapid fire, lightning round for the next four verses, Paul just quotes from the Old Testament. And just in case you're wondering, is this just a bunch of random collection of verses from the Old Testament? You notice this pattern in Paul. Whenever he wants to make a, a, a teaching in the New Testament, he's always going to ground it in the Old Testament. And what he typically does is shows you how the entirety of God's Word teaches it. And so these aren't just random verses he's taken, but if you look at like the table of contents of your Bible, you'll notice your Old Testament has four major divisions. Now, for some reason in 9 and 10... And I won't get into the technicalities. Paul kind of kind of revert, flips the order. But if you look in your table of contents, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Paul quotes in verse 10. Then the next section of the Old Testament are the historical books. Paul quoted that in verse 9. Then comes the wisdom poetry section of the Old Testament. He quotes that in verse 11. And finally, the prophetic books, which we have all the prophets. He quotes Isaiah the prophet in verse 12. What Paul is showing... What Paul is saying is that every major section of the Old Testament, God had always intended to bring in the ones who were different, to bring in the ones who were cast off, to bring in the ones that were weak, the Gentiles, us. And in similar matter, in chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, using the same word for weak that we've been looking at, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So while the immediate context talks about our, our moral consciences and the freedoms we have to do certain things, I think that principle can apply across the board. That if we've been given grace to be strong in some area, God has given you that strength, not for your own benefit, although, although that's clearly you will, but so that you can be a strength to those who are not strong. Because that's exactly what Christ did for us. The very thing that Paul is asking the Roman Christians to do we see is exemplified in the whole of the Old Testament. And there's a little bit of an irony here because the very thing that all the Old Testament, the Jews were having to recognize to bring in the Gentiles, now in this Roman church, the tables were turned because it was mostly Gentiles now having to accept the differences of the Jews. But God was saying this was always the plan. In fact, there wouldn't be a, just a Jew and a Gentile division that God was creating one new humanity out of all of them. That Jew and Gentile would worship together and that Jew and Gentile and all of humanity coming together in Christ is exactly the fulfillment of God's plan from the beginning. And we see it all through the Old Testament. In Jesus Christ, God was showing to his covenant people, the Jews, his trustworthiness. That when he makes promises, he can be relied to keep them. In Jesus Christ, God was showing the rest of the world his mercy. Even those who did not receive his promises were given the opportunity to be brought in. And so in Jesus Christ, we see God's truthfulness and his mercies. And if God could bring in all the people who were different, all throughout the Old Testament, bringing in the, the, the Gentiles, those who were cast out, 
He's saying, can you do any different in your community? And the answer is no. So Paul's first argument, why we should use our strength to please others and not ourselves, because this is exactly what Jesus did for us. But Jesus does it for a specific reason. It's not just so that we all can get together, hold hands, and sing kumbaya, and how great we are for getting along. That is not the point. Rather, the reason we use our strength to draw us together, the reason it's so vital is because of Paul's second argument here, and that is this, that our unity, our community is itself a witness to the watching world. Paul writes, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. The such harmony he's referring to is verses 1 through 3, that we don't live to please ourselves but please each other. Any community that's living that way, they're going to have harmony. Where you have conflict and dissent, according to James chapter 4, is when everyone's just living to please themselves. But Paul says when people live to please each other, there will be harmony. Maybe some of you have seen, seen this. A few years ago on social media, this went viral. It was a, a teacher. Let me read it to you because I don't think you can read the caption. A wise teacher once bought balloons to school, told her pupils to blow them up and write their name on one of them. After the children tossed their balloons into the hall, the teacher moved through the hall, mixing them all up. The kids were given five minutes to find the balloon with their name on it. But though they searched frantically, no one found their own balloon. Then the teacher told them to take the balloon closest to them, and then the teacher told them to take the balloon closest to them and give it to the person whose name was on it. In less than two minutes, everyone was holding their own balloon. The teacher said to the children, These balloons are like happiness. We won't find it when we're only searching for our own. But if we care about someone else's happiness, it will ultimately help us find our own. Now, this object lesson ended with happiness as its goal. And while I think the point is powerful and true for the Christian, our caring for each other has another ultimate goal. Look at verse 6. And notice these two words in particular, Paul writes, Paul writes, that together you may with one voice, okay, there's this concept of unity, What's the point of being together? That together with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our unity, the community that we have of, of pleasing one another, not using our strengths for our own, but giving our strength away for the benefit of others, is such powerful countercultural living that that brings glory to the Lord, the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we who are so different, so different from each other, don't merely just ignore differences or just tolerate those differences, but actually learn to welcome one another and accept those differences and allow those differences to make us a thicker community because of those very things, people look at that and say, something's going on there, something that I cannot explain. Paul talks a little bit about this in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. He says, but now in Christ you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Friends, can I say this? The quality of our unity, 
the quality of our community will do one of two things. It will either attract people to the gospel of Jesus Christ or it's going to repel them from it. That, that's absolutely true. I mean, if we can't get along with each other, it makes complete sense for somebody who's not a believer to reason, look, I, I don't know if I can really believe Jesus can overcome the grave when these people can't overcome their differences. Friends, if you are a Christian, your inability to love people who are different from you, that's not just the personal failure, that's a lie about the gospel. I need you to hear that. If you say that you are a Christian, your inability to, to love and get along with people who are different from you, that's not just personal sin, that's a lie against the gospel. Because the gospel itself says all these things can be overcome. Paul talks about it here. And later on in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So I looked at a couple other translations on Ephesians 4.3, and they say roughly the same thing. The New International Version says this, make every effort, and, and notice, by the way, it's not to generate unity. It's not to fake it and, and just kind of fabricate it. The unity already exists as we recognize our need of a Savior. We recognize our sin and our only Savior is Christ. That unity already exists. And so our job is to continue to maintain it. Notice in every one of these translations, make every effort to keep the unity. The New Living Translation says, make every effort to keep united. The New Americans translation says, being diligent to preserve the unity. And finally, the New King James, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. In essence, we should expect the world around us to be falling apart at the seams because they just simply don't have the key ingredient, which is the Spirit of God. Romans 15.33, Romans 16.20 Paul uses this as a title. He says, the God of peace. If you know him, your relationships ought to be characterized by peace because he's the God of peace. I love how in this passage, he, he's the God of endurance, the God of hope, and then in the next chapter, a little later on, he's the God of peace. If you know him, how are you bringing peace into the relationships of your lives? That's a question you have to ask yourself. So that's what I love about Christianity. It never lets you get away with just saying stuff. You've got to live it out. If he, is the God, if he is your God and the God of peace, does peace characterize your relationships? If not, what are you doing to reconcile? What are you doing to endeavor to keep that kind of unity happening? You might try once, twice, three times. Maybe you give up. How many times did God endeavor to break down the hostility between you and him? How many times did he try? Dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of times? What price did you and I pay for that wall of hostility to fall down between us and God? What price did he pay? Right? You get the point. Let me show you a photo. This is a church in Old Jerusalem. It's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, that church has been there since roughly the 4th century. It's been obviously worked on over the years. Emperor Constantine, when he became a believer in Christianity, uh, his mother took on a, a, a big effort to find Christian sites and place churches on them. So this is what they assume is the site of Christ's crucifixion. So they had a church built on it in about the 4th century. Currently, or actually 
since the 1500s, as far back as we know, six branches of Christianity take care of the church and are responsible for it. The Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Apostolic Church, the Roman Catholics, and to a lesser degree, uh, the Egyptian Coptics, the the Syrians, and the Ethiopian Orthodox churches. So they all kind of take care of the church. That's a generous way to put it. Basically, they all have to agree before anything can be done to the church. And since they all share responsibility and they all have to agree on it, the church is basically falling apart, okay? Um, A while back, somebody put up that ladder, I assume to do some masonry repair or something like this, but since the six churches, the the Armenians, the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, and and the Roman Catholics, could not figure out who of their group was the one responsible for putting up the ladder, uh, they don't know whose responsibility it is to get, remove the ladder and take care of it. And so they've been arguing about whose job it is to move the ladder because they don't know who put it up in the first place. Okay, silly, right? I was there in 1999, and I was on the, in that courtyard when they were sharing the story with us, and I looked around at all the tourists, and they were shaking their heads, and I was embarrassed as a Christian. I mean, these Christians can't even agree on something as silly and as mundane as this. Just, you know, just move the ladder, man. Take it on the chin, move the ladder. Now, this picture is from 2009. I was there in 1999. So 10 years later, and the ladder's still there. I guarantee you, I guarantee you that the ladder is still there 24 years after I saw it. Do you know how I know with certainty it's still there? Here's a picture of that ladder from 1890, 133 years ago, and the ladder is still there. The earliest rendition we have of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, this, this side of it, 1728, and the ladder is in the picture. It's not a photograph because we didn't have that technology, but an artist was drawing a, pic, a, a, a picture of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in 1728, and the ladder is there. That ladder has been there longer than America has existed, the United States. Just move the ladder, right? Here's the thing that's so sad. All of these groups believe that Jesus is Lord. They just can't agree who has to move the ladder. Now, here's the funny thing. We can sit, and there's more insane stories of what goes on there, and we can laugh at it, but here's the question. Friend, is that you? You might sing and say that Jesus has changed your life, but somehow he can't change your mind to get along with that person that you say you have differences with. Just move the ladder, right? Friends, our unity or lack of it communicates to the world. The world will either shake its head in embarrassment or else shake its head in astonishment over what God is doing amongst his people. Remember in John chapter 13, verses uh, 34, Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by what? Your love for each other. The world, he, he didn't say they will know you're my disciples by how many Bible studies you attend, how long you've been going to church, what your voting patterns are. No. He says, you will know, they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another, by your unity. In fact, 
so important is this. This was one of the things Jesus prayed for in his last prayer, in his high priestly prayer of John 17. He prayed, Lord, make them one as you and I are one. Remember, the quality of our unity, it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to attract people to the gospel or it's going to repel them from it. Finally, and quickly, lastly, the the last reason Paul offers to use our strength for others and not ourselves is because when we do that, that action is evidence of gospel hope. Now, four times the word hope appears in these 13 verses, but three of those four is just in verse 4 and verse 13. In verse 4, it's an assurance that the Scriptures could bring us this kind of hope, that we can actually live this way, this kind of unity, if we allow the Word of God to shape our lives, not not our preferences, not our feelings, not the prevailing cultural ideas of unity, but God's Word. So the question we have to ask is, does God's Word control your life? Are you living out its principles? Are you thinking about how do I live? What are the biblical principles at play? Remember I said last week, most of life is not chapter and verse. But that doesn't mean God's word doesn't have anything to say to us. It's rich in what it says to us. What are the biblical principles at play? How do I live in accountability to this? Two weeks ago, um, Pastor Peter was here. and He preached from our pulpit. He and I had spoken a few times before I, I met him when he was out here. But I was so impressed, a couple days before he flew out, he said, Pastor Rick, can I get an hour of your time? Can I get on your schedule? I want your counsel. Here's a, a mature, godly pastor of a large church in Kentucky. And he says, hey, I want to get your counsel. He has, comes from such a, a culture of, I want the Word of God to shape me whenever I get an opportunity to talk to somebody who, who can speak objectively because I'm not part of his life situation, but also I can bring the objective truth to his life. He takes advantage of it. Friends, how often are you taking advantage of godly counsel, right? Asking your friends, what are the biblical principles at play when I'm making this decision about my job, my retirement, my vacation, who I'm dating, what I'm going to do with my time? What biblical principles are at play, and are you using the Word of God to shape that? Are you just, as as James says, hearers of the Word but not being doers? It's very easy to do. Very easy to do. But Paul says you can have hope that you can have a radical change, a radical different community if the Word of God is shaping you. Secondly, in verse 13, as he used the word peace as a title for God, he does this for the word hope. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in this hope. You remember from last week, joy and peace are some of the attributes of the kingdom of God, Romans 14, 17. So here now, Paul adds this element of faith. Well, in our text, um, if you're using the, the ESV, the phrase in believing, the Greek word pestuo, we translate as faith, as trust, as belief. So what he's saying is that belief or faith or trust in God is the means by which joy and peace grow within us. Another way you can look at verse 13, another way to translate it would be this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. If faith is the means that joy and peace grow in you, abounding hope is the natural consequence, is what he's saying. And and all these are made possible by the Holy Spirit working in you. But that happens when you are subject to the Word of God. You see, the Word of God and the Spirit of God always work in tandem. 
And as we grow in our faith in Christ, we, in that faith, we, we exercise that trust in him, we grow in joy and peace. Hope is the natural byproduct. I said earlier that Jesus is the pattern, verse 7. We also realize he's also the power to live this way. We don't need to exercise or claim our freedoms when the very one who makes us free has us. You don't have to have your way when the one who is the way is yours. It's kind of Paul's getting it. Our trust in Christ is what brings us joy and peace, not getting your way. Faith in Christ guarantees joy and peace, not getting your way. Because if you get your way by using your strength to get it, all it takes is someone stronger than you to take it. And that's why those with strong force of personality, the strong, who use their strength for their benefit to get what they want, they're never truly satisfied. Why? Because they had to use their strength to get what they want. They have to continue to use their strength to keep what they want. And they know all it takes is someone or something stronger than them, and the very thing that they think is bringing them joy and peace is taken away. And Paul says that's not necessary because it is trust in Christ that brings you joy and peace. Christ uses incredible strength, not for himself, but for you and I. He has given you something that no one can ever take away. Christ used his freedoms to set his people free. Christ used his right as God to make us right with God. That's the hope of the gospel. Friends, when we lay down our freedoms and our rights, when, rights, and when we use our strength not to be a blessing to ourselves but to strengthen others, we become a visible picture of the gospel itself because that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave away his freedoms, gave away his rights, and used his strength not to please himself but to please his neighbor. A community of people like that can only be explained by one thing, the radical transformation of the gospel. And a community of people like that will be a witness to the world. My prayer, the prayer of our elders, is that that is the kind of community we will be by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mercy you have given to us in Christ. As Paul says in Philippians 2, who did not consider his equality with God as something to be grasped, but he willingly gave that up to become a servant and to live and die for us. And Father, we just ask that you would help us to be that way, not just morally by trying to do it in our own strength, by just being blown away by Christ, that as we gaze upon him and recognize how much he's given up for us, we learn to let go of the things that we cling on to that think bring us so much life, and they don't. Father, joy and peace come because we trust in you, not in getting our way. Help us to be a community that that lays down its freedoms, its rights, and uses its strengths for one another. So that, Lord, people would glorify you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.